Well, we're rushing toward uh, the end of the letter of James. We're going to uh, be in the middle of chapter 5 this morning, and then I think we'll just take one more Sunday to finish off uh, the last verses of chapter 5. You remember that the letter of James was written most likely by the brother of James, the brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus and knew Jesus his whole life, knew him well, probably heard many of the things that he said, and that this letter was written to uh, in a in a in a period of time after the early church of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem was being persecuted, was being sent out, um, forced out of their homes to go to other places and live in different towns and villages. So they were a migrant community, and they were moving into situations that often uh, involved difficulties, including those around oppression and injustice and the conflict between rich and poor. That's the the basic context of the letter of James. We're going to read this morning verses uh, 7 to 11 of chapter 5. You remember, um, if you've been here before, and if you haven't, I'll just uh, mention for you, the last couple of Sundays, we've been talking about um, issues relating to conflict and relating to suffering, uh, particularly as it relates to the rich and the poor, and uh, the kind of oppression that certainly in that time and even today can exist as rich people oppress poor people in order to make their profits and uh, gain their wealth. So it's in that context that James is talking about suffering. So let's read uh, from chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. It should appear on your screen, or if you have a Bible, obviously feel free to open uh, to there. James 5, the verses 7 to 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Before we go into the passage, just a couple of comments. The first one is, uh, and I've said this before, but I just want to reiterate it. We don't want to read James, and especially this passage, as his instructions on how to live or believe so that we are prepared for the next world. James is not showing us or telling us how to get that ticket that will get us through the pearly gates or to escape from this world. James stays rooted, hands and feet, in the mud of this world. There's nothing otherworldly 
or if I can just hang in here and just make it until that point, then everything's going to be okay. That's not what James is talking about. He's speaking to a migrant community mentioned of Jesus followers. And his focus is not on preparation for life after death. How do I get to heaven when I die? It's, it's for how to live right here in the, in the mess in which we find ourselves in our lives today. And then secondly, although the word suffering, of course, is used here, um, James is not talking about, uh, how do I say this, personal individual suffering in the sense of that I have a disease or that I'm struggling with something inside of myself. He's talking, as I already mentioned, about the kind of suffering that happens when one group of people abuses, misuses, and oppresses another person or another group of people. So it's not, um, it's not fair to say that James is speaking primarily to someone suffering from cancer. Or even someone maybe suffering the loss of a loved one. It is true that God's Spirit can speak to us through this text, even if we are suffering a very personal crisis or tragedy that's not rooted in injustice. And I hope the Spirit will do that if that's you today. I don't want to exclude that from the picture. But I think it's only fair to say, it's fair to the text and to James to say that that's not primarily what he's talking about. He's talking about the suffering that happens in the context of community and how people treat each other in that community. And just one other thing, this is, when you actually dig into it, a quite a complex passage. There's a lot of themes mentioned here, and we'd need a lot more time and interaction with each other to properly pull them all out. So I'm going to focus on a few of them that I think are important or that have struck me and I can understand your frustration if you think that I've ignored a theme that should have been addressed. And I'll tell you right now, Job is mentioned in this passage. I'm going to ignore him. I'm just simply not going to talk about him. If you want to talk about him some more, let me know. We'll, we can set up a cup of coffee, and I'm happy to do that. But I'm just not going to bring him up this morning, just because to do that adds a level of complexity that we don't have time for. We are, and I've been saying this every week, we are, as we're sitting here today on July 24, 2022, here in Broomall, Pennsylvania, or wherever you are on Zoom, we are not a people who are obviously oppressed or being treated unjustly. We're the people of privilege. We're the people of power. We're probably sooner the perpetrators than the victims. And I've been trying every week to make the step from James into our time because it's, it's not that easy. So how can we hear this passage speaking to us? What kind of injustice might we be experiencing? And as I was thinking about this, I 
ran across a podcast from Dr. John Deloney. You may remember him. I I played a piece from one of his podcasts a few weeks ago. He's a psychologist, counselor, does podcasts, and it's it's a he gives advice to people. People call in with their with their difficulties and issues. And I actually find him pretty good. So if you if you want to look him up, I think he's worth listening to. A man called in whose 11-year-old daughter had been molested by the father of the daughter's best friend. Imagine. The man was calling in because he was filled with anger, rage, and the desire for revenge because of what had been uh, inflicted, the terrible pain and agony and misuse that had been inflicted on his, uh, on his daughter. That got me to thinking about this topic of abuse. I'm sure these statistics are familiar to you. One person in the United States is abused every nine seconds. One in four women have experienced severe physical violence by an intimate partner. One in four women and one in four men are sexually abused in their lifetime. A report of child abuse, of child abuse, is made in the United States every 10 seconds. One in three girls and one in seven boys will be sexually assaulted by the time they reach 18. That means that, let's say there's 20 people listening to me right now at this moment between here and Zoom. Chances are high that there's a victim of abuse or that you know someone who's been abused or a loved one. That kind of ripping away of a part of your life, that kind of tearing away at who you are, that kind of evil, that kind of injustice, that kind of oppression, that kind of abuse is rampant among us. Maybe that's one way in which we can live into James. Another thing I want to mention is the issue of shame. The dictionary version of shame is it's a pervasive, negative, emotional state, usually originating in childhood, marked by chronic self-reproach and a sense of personal failure. It is the belief that you are unlovable, unworthy, or otherwise defective. It's usually rooted in your childhood. And it's oftentimes brought on by someone else. Who by the way they act toward you, the way they speak to you, the way they interact with you, give you the idea that you are unlovable, unworthy, or defective in one way or another. That can be a parent, can be a sibling, can be a teacher. Could be an older adult. And oftentimes, to our great sorrow, we have to admit, 
It's the church. It starts off as teaching to us by saying, you're totally depraved. And you're a worm. And you're a sinner through and through. And that you're unlovable unless something happens. So maybe shame is another way that I think all of us experience. Shame is another way that we can live into this passage of James. When James talks about suffering, we're not in that first century. We're not in that village or that town watching the rich people go by, knowing that they're rich only because they're a thief or the son of a thief. But we're carrying the load, the backpack with the bricks in it, of abuse or of shame. If that's where you are this morning, or you know someone who's there, listen to this passage from that perspective. And maybe you have another one, that's fine too. Those are the two that I could think of uh, fairly, fairly um, obviously. And James calls for patience. That's his first word. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. Establish your hearts, he says in verse 8. Remain steadfast. And we've talked about this concept before in James where he talks about endurance. Keep going. And one of the commentators that I, re that I read uh, defines this patience as this. A steady persistence in a course of action, a purpose, a state, especially in spite of difficulties, obstacles, or discouragement. A steady persistence in a course of action. In other words, patience is not passive. It's active. And another commentator wrote this, This kind of patience that James is talking about acknowledges trials and tribulations by exercising, by working, by acting, patience or steadfastness, and responding to suffering and injustice with acts of compassion and kindness. Responding to injustice and suffering with acts of compassion and kindness. We're going to pick up on that theme in a little bit. But when James calls us to patience in suffering, he's not calling us to or to being a doormat and letting it happen. And he gives this example of a farmer who obviously is active, who does all this work, who goes out and prepares, makes sure he has his seed, prepares the ground, plants the seed, keeps the weeds out, keeps the birds away, does whatever he needs to do, fertilizes, does whatever he needs to do, is active through the whole process. But there's this waiting dependent upon the weather and the rain. There's this combination, this, this wonderful combination of not lying down and sleeping, but being active in every way you can, and at the same time, waiting, trusting, and believing that the weather is going to do what it needs to do. 
Patience chooses what to think. It chooses what to believe. It chooses where to place one's hope. It chooses if, when, and how to act. Patience, steadfastness, endurance is a choice that you make. A choice to think, believe, hope, and act. And again, imagine in one of these little villages or towns, first century after Christ, in the first first decades of church as these people have been driven from their homes and they're coming into situations where they're the underdog where they're being oppressed this choice to be patient this choice to endure this choice to act in certain ways and today in a situation of abuse as devastating as that is, and as difficult as it might be, what are the choices that you make? And when you're living with shame, shame that cripples you to whatever extent it does, what choice do you make? What choice to think, to believe? What choice to hope? What choice to act? And James roots this patience in this passage, I believe, in two things. He, he says you can have this kind of patience for two reasons. And the first reason is, we talked about this a little bit last week, that the judge is coming. I don't know if you picked that up from the passage. The Lord is coming, he said, in verse, in verse 7. In verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. In verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. And it's amazing, and I learned this, I don't know how long ago, but not like recently, like yesterday, but a few years ago. (laughs) That judgment in the Bible, as it's presented in the Bible, is always designed to be a comfort for the oppressed. For those that need comfort. Again, I think we've been taught by the church through the, through the decades and through the centuries and through the millennia to see, comfort, see judgment as something we should be afraid of, and therefore we need to straighten up and fly right because the judgment is coming. In the Bible, judgment is designed as a comfort idea, a comfort concept, a comfort word, a word that gives hope to the oppressed and marginalized. And this word judgment that's used oftentimes in the, in, the, um, in the New Testament is a particular Greek word and has a, a wide variety of meanings. It doesn't just mean condemn. It means to distinguish between two things. It means to order, to arrange. It means to investigate, to discern or decide a conflict, to discern between good or bad, to pronounce. But it's all this rich meaning of judgment that's coming. Jesus Christ himself, 
who's going to come and distinguish between, discern, order, arrange, in order, arrange things, investigate, decide conflict, set things right, expose what is wrong, and set things right. And in the suffering you want to find, in which you find yourself, whatever it is, but certainly it's a, if it's a suffering that's rooted in someone who did some terrible thing or things to you that you did not deserve. James says, you can be patient because you know, choose to believe that the judge is coming who's going to expose what is wrong Make a judgment, discern, and set things right. That's the first reason that James gives, why we can have patience in this kind of suffering. And the second one that he gives, I found, is a pretty interesting one. He says in verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. That's kind of weird. Imagine going into a therapist saying, hey, this happened to me and I'm really suffering. And the therapist says, oh, take a look at this guy or take a look at that guy. I mean, maybe therapists, I'm not a therapist, maybe they do that, but that's not generally. I've been in therapy, so I know at least what no one ever did that to me. James says, take a look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And Israel knew many prophets, but there were two major ones. First one is Moses. A prophet who, and I'm quoting from Deuteronomy here, whom the Lord knew face to face, and there was none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do where? In the land of Egypt. This is a story of oppression. It's a story of liberation. It's a story of injustice and setting things right. And Moses goes to Egypt. He walks into Pharaoh's office, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's oval office, and he yells at him, let my people go. And he throws his staff down and it becomes a snake. And James says, you want to be patient in suffering. Look at Moses. That's a little bit weird. And another great prophet for Israel was Elijah. This prophet who stood on Mount Carmel. Maybe you remember that story. The, 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 I'll just say it. The wicked king Ahab. And he calls Ahab and he says, You bring your 450 prophets of Baal. And we'll both build an altar. And we'll put the sacrifice on the altar. And whichever God sends down fire from heaven uh, after we pray, that's going to be the real God, whether that's Baal or Yahweh. So the prophets of Baal do their thing all day long, in heat like today, and nothing happens. And Elijah builds the altar, puts the, 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 the bull on it, he says, bring some water. And I forget how many they bring. They bring a ton of water. And they soak everything. 
sopping wet. And Elijah prays this one little prayer. Lord, please send fire. Boom! The bowl is burned. The waters lick dry. The stones disappear. And James says, if you're suffering, look at Elijah. And look at what Elijah did. And then James says, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and we're just, I know it's in there, but we're just, we're just skipping it. And you, and listen to this, have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James says, you've heard of Job, and you've seen the Lord. Who's that Lord that James is talking about? It's got to be Jesus. James' brother. The older brother whom James grew up with, whom James grew up under. The one whom James saw moving about and speaking and teaching. And James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And I can imagine James having this, I don't think he was present on the mountain, but he was certainly told about it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, maybe you remember that story where Jesus takes three disciples, another James, Peter and John, up on the mountain. And who shows up there? Moses and Elijah. And this voice comes out and said, this is my son. Listen to him. This is the one who's come to heal all kinds of diseases. This is the one who's the Lord of the Sabbath. The day which, on which things are set right. This is the one who spoke of the kingdom as a mustard seed that grows into this great tree that all the birds of the air, in which all the birds of the air find their nest. This is the one who raises from the dead. This is the one who lashed out at the Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy and injustice. This is the one who with a whip cleansed the temple. This is the one who speaks of the coming judgment. This is the one whose back was broken in the garden of Gethsemane and who with sweat drops as blood prayed to his father, Father, not my will, but your will be done. This is the one who on that cross prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Jesus endured suffering of every kind and of the most unjust kind. And his purpose as he went through that suffering, was to build the kingdom of God. And James says, in his life and in his death, he was compassionate and merciful. Or in the words of John in John 1, full of grace and truth.
If you want to know what patience looks like in your suffering, then look at Jesus. Who suffered in every way like we do. Who was tempted in every way like we are. And went through it. There was nothing passive about him. There was no doormat about him at all. But he endured it. And he did so with patience. So as you experience the aftermath of abuse, of whatever kind, the aftermath of shame, however that's been brought into your life and identity. And as you desire to be patient, to persevere, to be steadfast, look at Moses, look at Elijah, but most of all, look at Jesus. who is watching you and who has promised to be with you and to never leave you and who has promised to give you what you need to take the next step, however hard that may be, and who has promised to, in the end, set all things right. And with your eyes on Jesus, then you can move into your world to yourself and to those around you with compassion and with mercy. And I think that's what James is trying to set before us as he tells us about his brother.